Well, John, there are dreams and there are dreams come true. Mm. And I, I got to imagine for someone like you who does what you do and why you do it in the style that you try to do it in. Right. I got to believe today's guest falls into the latter category for you. Um, it does. And today we have the pleasure of uh, one of the absolute great engineer, producers, mixers, all of that of the Yacht Rock era and beyond, both earlier and after. We have with us Bill Schnee. Welcome in, Bill. Thank you. Good to be here. I did want to, for context, say quickly for the people that maybe uh, don't recognize the name, because uh, I even think he said it in the book that people read the name on the front. They don't often read the name on the back of the record, but um, a few highlights. Obviously, Bill has worked on uh, Steely Dan's Asia and also a song on Gaucho. We've got Pablo Cruz, uh, three albums with them. We got Leo Sayer's biggest record, Endless Flight, uh, some Olivia Newton-John, some Neil Diamond, Boz Skaggs, which we'll get to, Huey Lewis, David Sanborn, <sighs> Chicago with David Foster, Pointer Sisters. I mean, it just goes on and I'm barely even up to 1986. But as I said, I read the names on the back. And I got to a point where I started looking at producers of records and buying them based on producers. And then I went even further the next step and started buying them based on certain engineer names that I knew had the sound that I liked. And I had a short list of of names that I looked for. And there's uh, Al Schmidt, Elliot Shiner, Greg LaDonia, Humberto Gatica, um, Bob Clearmountain, and then recently, as I've really dug back into this era, I've seen the name Bill Schnee. And now, outside of Bob Clearmountain, I can't think of another one of those names or anyone else in that era that actively, regularly did all three roles of tracking engineer, mixing engineer, and producer. And Bill's done all three. And Bill, I wonder if you could at least give everybody just the technical distinction between those three, and then maybe we'll dig into that a little deeper later. Okay. <clears throat> uh, well, the, the producer is the guy that the record company hires to uh, come up with the record, take the artist in the studio, and uh, my version of it is do whatever is needed. There's all kinds of producers. They run the gamut from uh, someone that can uh, write the song, produce the song, and even sing the song uh, if they need to, uh, but do it for someone else. They will produce for someone else. And the, on the other end of the spectrum is the kind of guy that I call the chemist, where he basically he may not know that much about music or at least not get that, that involved in the musical decisions, but does come up with the uh, elements to, to make a record, whether that's uh, helping with the songs, picking the songs, uh, finding the uh, arrangers to arrange the songs, the band to play the songs, whatever, the studio, the engineer, and shake all that up, and out comes a record. And uh, there's no perfect, uh, you know, th- there's no right or wrong with regard to producers. It's just whatever fits a particular artist. So he's basically, he should be the decision maker about what it takes to get the record made. Uh, the engineer is the guy that basically captures everything. He makes the uh, oral landscape that the record will have by by uh, all of the recording all of the instruments and vocals and so on. And the mixer is the guy that takes uh, all of the tracks when the record is complete, when the engineer and the producer have completed uh, overdubbing of whatever they're going to do to make the record, and he assembles it into the to uh, hopefully a good musical aesthetic um, to make the final stereo record 
or multi-channel record as we're embarking again yet again on another multi-channel surround system and uh and so that's the basic uh, uh of what those three roles are bill you um i was grateful for you because you kind of opened your book which i want to get to with that explanation and i told john i was almost afraid to ask that dumb question at the beginning so i let him ask it right. for one but also it's not such a dumb question because that's where you start your book and john and i jokingly sometimes refer to the podcast as the uh, out of the main book club. We've done T- Ted Templeman's book. Yep. We did uh, Steve Lukather's book. We have Jeff Beccaro's book on the docket. Right. This is the first time we've actually spoken to the author, though. So we are really excited to talk about Chairman at the Board. Uh, book came out when, and tell us, if you don't mind, what was the impetus for you to write this book now? It seems like there's a lot of books coming out from the Yacht Rock era, and I know this doesn't solely focus on Yacht Rock, but what was your impetus for writing the book, and, and walk us through getting that, uh, your thoughts on the paper. Um, well, uh, I, uh, you know, I've had, as you pointed out in the beginning, I've had a very illustrious, long career, been very blessed. The simple fact is, I love telling stories, and I would, as I would tell people stories that happened, and and throughout the years of my working with all these different artists, people would say, "Why don't you write a book? Why don't you write a book?" And I would say, "You know, yeah, well, maybe someday." And uh, but it wasn't until a producer of a, a Brazilian artist that I was working on took me to dinner after we finished. And said, how did you get started? And I started telling stories. And after about 20 minutes, he said, you know, you really should write a book. And I said, yes, I've heard it before. <laughs> and he said, but, you know, the record business as we know it was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s, and it peaked in the 70s, going into the 80s. It did. It was a very short time, a very iconic time, and it will never be repeated again. And you were there. And when he said, you were there, all of a sudden I realized that my main complaint of writing a book had been that it would be, uh, well, I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this, and then I did that, which seemed too self-serving. But now with that in mind, I could tell stories that had nothing to do with me, things, you know, some fun and funny things that happened along the way to other people. And um, so that was it. I got in the car after uh, that dinner and called my wife and said, I think I'm going to write a book. And uh, so I started it probably six years ago, and when it was done, uh, I happened to come down with cancer, and that put a halt on things for quite a while. But cancer's all gone, not going to come back. And uh, that was it. Made a deal for the book, and it came out in March of this year. You know, what I love so much, Bill, about – I read a lot of fiction. I read nonfiction. But what I love about your book is it reads like I'm sitting in a room with you and you're just, as you say, telling me a story. It doesn't feel like – it's got such a natural flow to it and just such a, like an accessible style that as you're – I'm assuming this was your first book that it just proves that everyone that was encouraging you to do so was exactly spot on. John, you uh, – you – track with some of these stories because you remember them as he was telling them because you lived through some of the stuff. Yeah, I was of a listening age uh, during the, you know, I was hitting my teens in the mid uh, 70s. So right as you were getting into, uh, you know, really starting to peak, um, that stuff was, you know, not all of it was on my, uh, you know, front listening channel though, you know, because I was more into the, the hard rock cause that's what all my friends were into. So I'm kind of rediscovering this stuff later as a more mature person. It's probably the best way to discover it. But uh, Bill, I did. If you wanted to cover something, um, some of the older stuff, some of the stuff before you got into more of a larger studio, you tell some great stories 
uh, about some of the crude equipment that you started on and how that shaped you. Um, and then it even led at one point into the direct to lacquer recording, which I know is getting really into the weeds a little bit. But if you could talk about some of the early stuff you worked on, not necessarily the specifics of the gear, but how having a very crude uh sort of stuff to start on for your early education in this shaped you. And then I'd love to hear you explain to people what a direct-to-lacquer recording is because that, that was so intriguing. Okay, I just want to correct you on one thing, though. You said that I was peaking when you were in your teens, and I haven't peaked yet. So let's, ah, there let's you go. That. <laughs> yeah, I knew that didn't sound right when I was saying yeah. it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the, the simple fact is I was in a band in high school, and uh, we got, as soon as I graduated high school, I started college, but our band got signed to Decca Records. And uh, we went and recorded uh, two of the best studios to this day in Hollywood, Sunset, uh, sorry, Capitol Records and uh, United Western. And uh, when we got dropped, because we didn't have any hits, and that's the way it goes, uh, we got a second record deal with a guy named Richie Podler producing us. And Podler's studio was kind of funky, but when we did the, our first track and I came in for the playback, I sat there listening, looking up at those speakers and listening to what was coming out of them, and it was a real aha moment for me. Uh, so much so that when the music stopped, I pointed to all the equipment and said, can you teach me how to do this? And he said, no, I'm teaching <laughs> this guy Cooper. Go out there and do another take. But that was the <laughs> moment that uh, and, and it did it for me that set my life in motion. And the reason was that there was an emotional content to what I was now hearing out of the same band that had recorded in those other great studios. Uh, and I knew his equipment couldn't be that much better. I assumed it couldn't be that much better. It didn't look as good, in fact. But it showed me that it's not the equipment, it's the operator. And, mm. uh, and I knew that I wanted that to be able to do that. I wanted to be able to add that emotional content to the music. So that's how it, I got started. And because he wouldn't take me on, I found a little studio that uh, where I, I was living with my parents still. And I found a little studio there that was, uh, shall we say, not the best uh, with the <laughs> less than equipment. And uh, such, well, to describe it here, we had egg cartons on the wall for sound absorption. Yeah. Uh, you could do worse, by the way, but <laughs> yep. you, you could also do a heck of a lot better. And uh, it was just a door with a window, not a double wall construction like every studio should be, uh, and just a mixer. We had no uh, equalization, no tone controls, uh, and just a, a Fisher space expander like in a guitar amp for a reverb. Oh, wow. And two, two condenser professional microphones, and the rest were dynamics. So to say that it was less than... Uh, is not an overstatement. Is that the place that you uh, that expanded by putting a second mixer on top of the old one? That's it. He, <laughs> bought, he came in. He came in with a, the owner came in with a homemade four track one day, and I said, "How are we supposed to do that with this uh, six input mixer, two channel mixer?" And he said, "With this." And he set a second one right on top of it. And I, I said, "No, no, that that's not going to work." Uh, and uh, so he, he did come up with uh, someone. He said, I found a guy that people say knows a lot about electronics, uh, and he's going to come and talk to us about building a board. That guy was Toby Foster, and he would go on to be uh, a, a, a true mentor to me. He's the one that, when I introduce him, I always say he taught me everything I know, because he taught me all the basics. And mm. uh, he, was, he heard these less-than recordings that I knew I was making with less-than talent, and which is what you find in a studio like that. And... 
and he said a couple of things. Uh, the, the biggest, the main one being, he said, you know, what you're learning by working with this less than equipment and less than talent is going to really pay off when you finally work with better equipment and better talent. And of course, at that time, I, I thought, I can only hope that I can get somewhere that I can work with better equipment and better talent. Right. Um, but uh, I obviously did, and he was certainly right about that. And uh, the other thing that he didn't tell me until later was that the good news about how I'd gotten my start was that prior to the owner bringing in that homemade four track, everything we did in that studio was completely live. You mixed it to, to two track, to stereo, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And that, that idea of actual mixing on the spot uh, is, is, uh, really became really important to me and probably paid off nowhere better than the direct-to-disc records that you want me to talk about. Yes. And the direct-to-disc records are where one whole side of an album is recorded directly to the LP lathe that makes the master that they make records from. And it, the lathe is a mechanical process. It starts at the outside of the, of the record and goes all the way to the inside to where the label will be. And you can't stop it. So it's just a one process for 17 minutes, whatever it's going to be. And so that means that everybody uh, is playing, everyone is playing, and the engineer is mixing song one, then song two, then song three, and so on. And the uh, owner of the mastering lab, Doug Sachs, famous mastering engineer, uh, had had made a directed disc record when he first opened his studio in 1969, he made the first record. Uh, at the studio, there was a studio right behind the mastering lab, and it was called Continental Sound at the time. It would later become Producer's Workshop, where I did a lot of recordings, including Asia, Steely Dan's Asia. And it was a, it was a very good studio. It had, it had good acoustics for a small studio, but it especially had a really good sounding console, a homemade console that sounded really, really good. And Doug made a directed disc record when he opened the, his mastering studio, basically to show off the mastering. Uh, he figured people listening to this are, you know, will be impressed with his mastering and bring their tapes to master. I should say that the reason for doing this is that with a normal record at the time, you would record on an analog multi-track mas master, and then you would mix that, when, when all the overdubs were done, you would mix that analog master to another two-channel analog master. That meant that the sound went from the microphones through the console once, then onto the analog tape, and then the, the, the recordings off the analog tape went through the electronics again and onto the two-track uh, mix-down master. So going direct to disc meant that the mics come in, they get mixed, and they go right to the lathe. So you're bypassing two generations of analog tape, and which is a great savings in sound because analog tape did have a sound of its own, mm -hmm. and one pass through the console. So the net effect is that it's, a, it's the highest resolution recording you could make. And so he, that's why he did that first one to show off, as I said, the, his disc cutting. Kind of cheating in a way, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. it, it worked, I guess. It works. Then he yeah. did another, his partner was a great keyboard player and, hit, and who arranged the, uh, the first record and then the second record. And then they did a third record in 73 and they asked me to engineer that. 
And when I, when I did that, it, it, that was the most fun I'd ever had in the studio in my, at that point, pretty young career, three years into being professional. Um, be, and it was just amazing to go uh, three, to think that in three days we had recorded, mixed, and mastered an album. A whole record. A whole record. And, and so when I went back to regular gigs, it was like working in slow motion. So as I thought about it over the, the months, following months, uh, I decided I really want to do one of these. And I went to Doug and I said, I want to produce one of these albums and I want to use a vocalist. And he looked at me cross-eyed and took me a couple of weeks to talk him into showing him that I really felt I could do it. And he did believe in me, but it took a couple of months to convince his partner to let me do it. But they did, uh, they did give me the, finally give me the go-ahead with a lot of meetings and a lot of uh, rules that I had to follow. And when I, when I started putting it together, I'd only worked with two artists at that time that I knew could walk up to the microphone on the last song and once again deliver a performance. In other words, every time they walked up to the microphone, it was like, you're going to sing right now, you're going to deliver now, because there's no punching in, there's no fixing anything. And the, the two artists were, one was Barbara Streisand, who I'd done mm. uh, at that point two records with. And uh, I called her manager, who basically basically said, go away, kid, you're bothering me, when I asked about <laughs> doing, a, doing a, a, a live album for a little independent record company. And the other artist was an artist I had just done some vocals and mixing for that was a new artist on Motown named Thelma Houston. And uh, so I went to Motown and uh, talked to Suzanne DePass, who was Barry Gordy's right-hand girl. And uh, she thought it was a very interesting idea with nothing to lose. And that's how we did it. And we, uh, that's, we worked out a, an arrangement, loan-out arrangement, and that's who I did the record with. And uh, uh, th those, th that record, was it, that really set the mark uh, for and, and opened up the field for other people to start doing direct-to-disc records. Although I do think that Sheffield, at Sheffield, we did the best. Talk about uh, working under pressure, though. I mean, that's a lesson right there. It's just, and when it, when the red light goes on, you're it's go time, right? Yeah, it is go time all the way. Yeah, on the first one that I only engineered of Lincoln's record, um, I, I've never smoked, but somebody had one of those little wooden little cigars that with a wooden tip on it. And I asked to just have that so I could put it in my mouth at the beginning of the take. And when the take was over, I pulled it out and it was all splinters from, uh, from me chewing wow. on it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, um, I know that you're probably exhausted on talking about Asia, but I know that our fan base wants to hear a little bit about that. And I, I did have a question. Did you mix Asia at all, any of the songs? No. So it would have been from a tracking standpoint. Yeah. I, yeah, that's all I did was the tracking. When, when I was done with the tracks, um, when I was done with the tracks, Donald and Walter came to me and said, you know, we're going to go off and do overdubs for a few months and lock ourselves in the ABC studio, and, uh, but we'd like you to mix it when we're done. 
And I said, you know, guys, I really don't think that I could do that. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, my mixing style, I think, is going to be a bit different than the way you guys like to mix. And uh, see, I had heard from uh, Jeff Beccaro, the fabulous drummer, and Michael O'Marty, an incredible keyboard player, that both friends of mine that had played on their two previous records that of their maniacal ways in the studio. <laughs> and so, uh, and back then, uh, especially, I mixed for a performance. I mixed from, you know, I didn't, a lot of guys would mix like sections and edit them together on the two track, but I, I wanted to go from top to bottom. And, uh, uh, and I just knew that it was going to be, you know, experimenting to the nth degree, which, you know, I do believe in experimenting and mixing to try to find options and whatnot. But, but so uh, about six months after we finished, they called me and said, you know, we've got a song finished. Uh, can we try one? And I said, sure. And we went into a studio and I got a mix up. They came to hear it and, you know, oh, that sounds great. And then it was, hmm, maybe we could try this. Uh, okay, and maybe we could hmm, try less of that, but add this. Uh, okay, and then what about this, and what about that? And, you know, after about five more hours, uh, they could tell that I was, you know, I, I had completely lost it. I couldn't, I couldn't begin to do the mix the way I wanted to at that point. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm a lot more patient now. I was young then. Uh, I'm a lot more patient now, but... <laughs> They went off. Uh, I, when we finished that day, I said, you know, guys, you've got an unbelievable record here. Uh, it's it's going to do incredibly well, uh, how, however it comes out. And they went and did almost all of the mixing with my good friend, Elliot Shiner, mm. who is definitely a much more patient man than I am. Well, then you, had, uh, you, you ended up working with Richard Perry and David Foster. So I imagine you eventually got into those meticulous mix sessions, didn't you? Yeah, well, Richard Perry much more than Foster. Foster, you know, Richard was uh, <laughs> Richard was always looking for something better, and uh, and so, and I don't I don't ever want to put anything down on Richard. He's one of the best producers right. pop music has ever produced. Uh, his record speaks for itself. But I'd be I'd be joking <laughs> if I said that it wasn't arduous mixing sometimes because he just always wanted to try for something better and you know a lot of times we had it and just kept going right past it and that kind of thing whereas foster was much more uh focused uh about what what you know his he was always very articulate and focused on on in the mixing process about what to what to do to you know make him happy do you have a feeling on um since you've done both the tracking side, so this is more the engineer hat, the tracking as well as the mixing, is there an area where you think the, I don't know how to put it, the magic happens where almost like if you record something well, it mixes itself kind of thing? Or do you believe that as a mixer, you know, that's where everything blossoms? Do you have a feeling on that? Well, I, you know, for the most part, the magic happens you know, as, as, the magic happens when the pieces are being put together. Uh, in in the old days, you know, the magic happened uh, almost for sure on the basic track, where, and that's certainly the case with Asia. Um, you know, if you listen to, which they're all online now, my basic tracks, I think every one of them uh, are, are online on YouTube. You listen to the basic tracks compared to the final record, and you hear, you can hear that they didn't, uh, the, the the essence of everything you like about the songs was there in the tracking. 
Uh, and that's that was the good news about the overdubbing process on that album, because as crazy as they might have been, and like I said, they took months doing overdubs, they didn't glom, you know, more stuff onto more stuff. They found holes and places and, you know, and they did, however they did it, they didn't suffocate what was captured in the, in the uh, initial tracking. So that's how it was, you know, for me, that's what it always was, you know, just like the, the, the story I suppose I'll tell uh, since we're on Asia uh, about another song I cut that day. Um, but before that, but, you know, the, you know, I, obviously mixing is extremely important. Um, uh, I say in the book, I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect mix. There's more than one way to skin a cat. And to me, a, a, a a, a perfect mix is a mix that works, and uh, uh, it's amazing. You know, there was a season there in the, in the late 80s and 90s where uh, record companies were having several mixers mix the same song and pick the best one, and I was involved in uh, some of those, and it was always amazing to me to hear, you know, what my fellow engineers, uh, mixers, had done, and some of them were quite different, in fact. Hmm. But... You know, and they still worked for me. It still felt really good. So there's there's that. Not to go against anything I said earlier, because I about you know because I don't I do believe in uh, experimenting in the mixing process, especially now uh, where we live on a computer where you can do you know do and undo so many different things. You know, it's just it's so much easier than it ever was on analog, where you were limited with tracks and so on. But uh, I, I don't know that you can make magic in the mix, but uh, I think it, it has to be there. You can certainly make things better. You can certainly bring things out. You can certainly create things that, that weren't on the original recordings in what you're, how you're processing them and what you're doing with them, because now because of a certain effect, delay, or whatever, mm -hmm. now it, it has a, a space that it never had before, that kind of thing. So you can definitely yeah. do a, an awful lot like that. But for me, it's the magic is in the putting together of the pieces. And that's where a lot of people fall down is uh, they, <laughs> these days with unlimited tracks, uh, they, you know, they just keep, well, let's try this, let's try that. And you've got so many things when you get down to mixing, you know, you're lost. When I'm producing something, I still like the idea that, uh, that, that I always tried to do from the beginning, which is I start thinking about the the final record, you know, right away. Mm -hmm. That you know, mm -hmm. let's just start thinking right now what's it going to be, and you know, uh, you, again, you can still do some effects and things that you may not use, or even instruments that you may not use, or that you might use very sparingly. That you've got it the whole way, but you're only going to use it in the bridge or something like that. But uh, but that's pretty much how I feel about that stuff. But you always have your eye on that final outcome in some way. Yeah, I, I, that, that's really... And it probably comes from the fact, you know, of me being... Uh, coming from old school, which is what yep. I came from as producer. opposed to the modern day. You know, when I speak to the kids in recording schools today, you know, they're, they're 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, and they've all had... They've all had a hard disk recorder since they were 10, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. You know, they come in with tremendous amount of 
that kind of knowledge. And uh, it's good that they go to schools to try to, you know, expand on it because it's not something that's uh, so easily, you know, it's easily taught if you're used to computers. But uh, I think there's a, a lot to be learned, obviously, in terms of how to, how to implement all the tools to the best advantage. Well, since you talked about mixing, I, I wanted to, I had a note that I was going to get to later, but since we're on it now, I always thought, you know, I'd kind of learned two sort of rough approaches to mixing. One was this, uh, a lot of people would start with like kick drum, bass drum, maybe snare drum, kind of get that working together, add the vocal on top, get all that working, and then start filling in around it. And then there's others that more have like kind of all the faders up, and they're just kind of gradually tweaking and moving things sort of all at once, sort of like a, almost like a potter, uh, you know, a potter's wheel shaping the clay and all that stuff. Do you, do you have a process where you say, okay, I always start from a certain area? I'm talking obviously within pop music because, you know, if you get into jazz or classical, your approach might be different. But if you're doing a pop or a rock record, do you start from one of those or, uh, you know, a certain starting point all the time? No. Uh, it de- it depends if they've sent me i i always i usually ask for a rough mix mm-hmm. and i listen to the rough mix and uh to see what the song is to you know because it ca- seems kind of silly to start building something when you if you don't know what it's going to be so if i don't have a rough mix then for sure i'll put all the faders up and listen to the song you know just kind of play around with it get some kind of a balance playing with the faders to see you know, a time or two through the thing to see where the song's going, then tear it down probably and start with the drums. Um, uh, I just did a dance record that uh, from someone that I've mixed for before, and uh, I said, you know, you didn't send me a rough mix. And he said, no, I don't want you to be influenced by anything. Just give me your take mm. on it. And uh, I did it, and he absolutely loved it. So, it, it, you know, it's the old it just depends answer. Well, I had a question going back to... Um the correction you made to John about oh, you, pe- you peaking in the, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Probably what he meant to say, and far be it for me to ever defend my brother. Right. But Because you mentioned in the book that recording sort of the quality peaks in the 70s or 80s. At least that's how I feel. So my question for somebody who mixes and, and produces and engineers, why can't we emulate, even the people who are trying to emulate the Yacht Rock sound now, and there's a modern artist, and there's a you know, John Mayer and Bruno Mars, they can't emulate the, the warmth, the pristine sort of when I, pristine is the word that John and I always used to describe Asia and Gaucho. Like it's just pristine. And it sounds like the pinnacle. We've got more technology now than we had back then. Why can't we emulate? Is it because we don't choose to, or because you simply can't emulate that? I think the, you know, one of the main things (laughs) is, you know, we're spoiled by technology. Um, Yeah. I did a record uh, four years ago, I think, a new artist, Haley Reinhardt. Um, she was uh, on one of the, those shows, uh, American Idol, I believe. She was an American Idol uh, finalist. Uh, very good singer, very talented and whatnot. And the producer called me and said, I want you know, to do a, a it's going to be an, a, a 70s rock record and of, of cover songs, all hits from then. And what do we need to do to, to get that? And I said, well, it's going to start by being on tape <laughs> and mm-hmm. instead of Pro Tools, instead of hard disk. And um, I said, but you're not going to like it. A, tape is extremely expensive. It's going to gobble the budget like crazy. And uh, m- more importantly, you've pr- this producer has you know, done a lot of records and he's used to the flexibility and the, everything that you can do in with Pro Tools. So we compromised by... 
recording it to tape and immediately went right on to Pro Tools. So it gave a little bit of the flavor of tape. But, uh, you know, and there have been, there've been some rock bands that, that will do that, but I don't know anyone in the pop world that has really forced themselves to do an album completely uh, on analog tape. And then it's a lot of the headspace, you know, you have to be in the, the old kind of headspace, too. Like I said, of doing, you know, don't plan on, uh, you know, plan on the basic track being the thing that, that's going to carry it through. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, as much of the old equipment as possible. Even on the Haley Reinhardt record, we, uh, I don't believe we used any equipment. We did it on an old API console, and I, don't, and I believe we didn't use any piece of equipment that had been built after 1979. Um, but I think, you know, just going to Pro Tools and the processing and the pitch correction and the this and the that and all that stuff, you right. know, the, you know that, we didn't have any of that stuff, you know. And, it's, you know, I, I've, I've said for years, you know, we make way too much out of perfection. Those stupid drum machines ruined everything, <laughs> you know, because for me, the, you know, I, I love drums. I'm a wannabe drummer. And I loved drums, the drumming. I thought from the beginning, this is the backbone of pop and R&B music. And it's very important. And so as I studied drummers, especially wanting to be a better one, uh, realizing uh, about different drummers have different feels. And I go into that in the book somewhat, about what it takes, what different feels are, what it really is. But, you know, the, uh, you know, and then we came up with the drum machine that is absolutely perfect. And, you know, there's no drummer that's absolutely perfect. There's some that play pretty darn close, all right, but my favorite drummers are the ones like Jeff Percaro, um or, or Jim Keltner, that if you measured everything with, when they're playing with a click, if you measured it all, you'd see that they're, they're not spot on with the click. The, the bass drum might be pretty darn close, but the snare drum almost always is going to be a little bit behind the beat, just a teeny bit, and the hi-hat's somewhere in between, go, dancing in between. And, but that feel thing is what what uh, to me what moves you know again trying to get emotion out of music and you know perfect drums on a drum machine is not exactly emotional to me and of course now since the early 80s when that came out when those came out uh, they've gotten people have gotten a lot better and the design of drum machines uh, take some of that into consideration but um, you know what cracked me up is there's a, a certain artist that's had some good success uh, uh, actually and uh, the last record that I mixed for him, uh, he used, there's a new drummer on the scene in Los Angeles. It's really great and he feels really good. And uh, I got the tape to mix and I was excited because he was using this drummer for the first time. And I opened up, <clears throat> opened up the session and looked and there was probably 500, 700 edits on the drums oh. where he had, taken the, <laughs> he had taken this drummer and put him perfectly on the grid. So it's like, wait a minute. I, I, you may as well let me play drums if you're going to do that for crying out loud, you know. <laughs> oh man! Uh, so whatever, but the, what much too much has been made out of perfection, and you know when it comes to what we can that I was alluding to a minute ago, um, things like vocal, you know, tuning and whatnot, and you know I'm not going to do it, but I could name quite a few artists that if singing it completely in tune was important, they never would have had careers. Big careers. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's much yep. more about emotion than it is, you know, the perfection and intonation. That I think the average person doesn't re really care about that much. And now, of course, now that we've been at this with tuning for 15 years, 
you know, everybody freaks out if, if, the, if it's not tuned, you know, if it hasn't gone through that process. Yeah, people if, expect to hear it now. Yeah. If we could go, um, I want to put the producer hat on or have you put it on for a second because you mentioned something earlier about when I, I said about sort of keeping your eye on the finished product and you used um, an example something I always the way I've always looked at production and you mentioned the word a puzzle and I've always seen production as um, as that puzzle and all the pieces are out there somewhere to be had and put together in the right combination because I know that this final product at some point will exist. And if I find all these right pieces and put them together, they will eventually snap together and you'll sort of have that aha moment where it feels done. But sometimes finding that last piece can be like right in front of your face and yet you miss it. And I thought one of the most fun stories in the book was about how the saxophone part on JoJo came about because we actually featured the song Jojo in one of our lists. We did like a top 10 favorite guitar solos of the era. And then we did a top 10 of not guitar solos. So it included sax stuff. And Tom brought that one to the party. And you have a very revealing story about how that would just suddenly hit you with another sort of aha moment. Yeah. Well, a- after we got the track and, and did some overdubs on JoJo, uh, Boz, we-, we had to take a few weeks off because he had a small tour to do. And one of the shows, one of the shows was in Los Angeles. And so obviously I went to the show and I'm sitting in the audience and I couldn't believe it when the uh, intro came on that he was do, put. He had put it in the show. The record wasn't even finished yet. We hadn't finished the record, let alone put it out. But he had decided to put it in the show. And after the uh, the first bridge, it, the the intro starts over again. The reintro. And I had we had been thinking about something has to. I had been thinking something has to go there. I don't know what. And, and all of a sudden. Uh, he hits the reintro, and his sax player just starts wailing out of there, and in that section, and I went, my gosh, perfect! And uh, then there's another one, you know, down the, later on in the tune, and he does it again. Right. And so when we got back to work, I said that was a great idea, and he, I said, how did that come about? And he said, well, we were in rehearsal, and it just seemed right to do, you know. And so uh, sax guy was sitting there, and he said, why don't you play something there? And so it's just one of those things. So I got, um, uh, I hired uh, 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 one of the top sax players in Los Angeles to come in, and uh, we we did it. And when we listened back to it, I mean, it was great, but it just didn't do the same thing that it had done on the live when I heard it live. So I thought, you know, maybe it's just it, it's uh, it's an aggression thing. It's something. Let me try something else. And I got another sax player, also very very well known, outstanding musician came in and did it and it was the same thing and so then, so finally you know when 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 whether it's god or the universe or somebody's tapping you on the shoulder it's like you know what about the obvious and uh, so i said by the way can i have the name of the, your sax player from the road please and called him up and he came in and boom first take i mean it was right there it was all about his attitude and aggression that he had on it that just fit like a glove and uh, and and it worked, 
And, you know, those other two sax players were really great players, let me tell you. But he had the, uh, the, the feeling. He had the, the emotion for the moment. What about the fact that the uh, bass drops out? Was that a production decision? Was that a, happened at the mix? Or was the band always playing it that way? I just found that was weird that all of a sudden the bass drops out for that. And then I started to really like it. Yeah, no, that was always planned from the beginning. And that, that's another story in itself, uh, because uh, the great bass player David Hungate from Toto, original bass player in Toto, was booked on that session. And when we got, well, I, it, got to the studio, and Steve Lucas, there's a guitar player from Toto, who was also on that song, came in. He said, Hungate's not feeling well. And he said, but, but don't worry, I got a guy. And he hadn't even told me. He just hired this guy. His name was John Pierce. He was another high school friend of Lukather's who came in. And I'm pretty sure that's the first session he'd ever played on with, you know, really big time players like that. And uh, he just killed it. You know, he just hit the bass part on there, I think, is just fabulous. Mm-hmm. And uh, but no, the the the, the reintro was just like the intro was de- uh, designed to have that come out. Interesting. Hold it right there. I know you're dying to hear the rest of that solo, but I think that might be a good place to pause, and it sets up a little cliffhanger, and it gives us reason to ask Bill if he will come back next week and join us for our part two. Bill, are you up for that? You sure you guys are going to have me back? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, we'll have you back. We might just have to make this the Bill (laughs) Snay Hour from here on out. Have you back every week. There you go. All right, well, we'll take a break. We're going to do our lightning round thing. And, Bill, we will get back to you, um, if you will be so kind, next week. Yes, yes. All right, John, you know what that means. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Lightning round. You got anything you're dying to tee up? Because it's uh... Well, I, I want to openly admit that my... Uh lightning round is not yachty really at all because of the impact that the, a lot of Bill's stuff has done. It's era appropriate, but I, I wanted to make sure there were some things that Bill talked about in the book, some special songs that I wanted to get into the lightning round, regardless of them being yachty. So that's my confession. All right. Well, that's fine with me. Um, why don't you go first then? Okay. Well, uh, the first one I'm going to start with right out of the gate is something that uh, Richard Perry produced. He talked about the time spent with Richard Perry. Uh, this is a Yachty personnel track. John Robinson, Greg Fillingaines, and Michael Boddicker on keys, Lee Rittenauer, Paulina DaCosta. It's got Gary Grant, Chuck Finley, Jim Horn on the horns. Now, it's way too fast to be yacht, but if you, if you really give it a listen, there's a certain amount of doobie bounce in the main keyboard riff. And Bill was hired to do a remix of this song when it was originally released two years prior and kind of tanked as a single, and they wanted to give it one more try. Bill remixed it, and here is Pointer Sisters, I'm So Excited. Yeah, 
Yeah, so that was originally 1982, and it was on an album that was actually called So Excited. So, I mean, it was meant to be a feature track on the album, and uh, it only went, well, it went to, like, number 30, something like that. Um, but then they remixed it two years later, 1984, and it went to number 9. So um, so that's the one we all know? The one that we all know, yeah. And um, <laughs> Billboard even has it as number 23 on their list of the 100 greatest girl group songs of all time. Hmm. <laughs> Yes. Well, what just might be. I had no idea. Mm. Yeah. Second try, right? You never know. Well, that's good reason to go off the map there. That's some interesting factoids. Boy, you're going to really outshine me in this lightning round, so I'm glad it's not a competition. Um, all right. I'm going to do a little tire inner for... Um, Is that a word? Yes. It's two words okay. with a hyphen mm. in between. Mm. Uh, we just left off as our cliffhanger talking about JoJo, um, right? Yep. And we are going to, looking ahead, we're actually going to do a deep dive Boz Skaggs album with Silk Degrees. Yes. So here's a little foreshadowing. Does it float your boat, Lido Shuffle? Is kind of funny because uh, I was thinking about that tune. Um, I would say no. It feels it's a, a rock shuffle, you know, not a halftime shuffle. Um, I don't want to give too much away on my thoughts on Silk Degrees, but Silk Degrees in general, the recording of it doesn't sound yachty to me. It sounds very pre-yacht, and I would say that's where Lido Shuffle sits mm. for me. Okay. Well, I'm just going to give it a soft no for now, and I will explain why in the episode in which we do Silk Degrees. So, Coolio. moving right along, I am going to a little sort of viewer mail for my um, uh, buried treasure, because this is actually Facebook mail. And uh, listener Paige, you know Paige, right? Mm-hmm. I do. So she posted a great tune from Stephen Bishop. So nothing to do with our, our conversations here with Bill, but sort of because it's not Bill, but the album's Bish. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> she turned me on to a tune that I should probably know. Oh, here's how it ties in, because it has David Hungate on bass, which we were just talking about with Bill. Correct. It's got David Foster on electric piano, Michael McDonald on the vocals. Um, the whole album is chock full. That Bish album from 1978 has all kinds of personnel, uh, including Art Garfunkel, which is maybe oh. where that collab started. Right. right. Um, but anyway, the tune that uh, Paige posted, I just think it's a gem, and I, I'm listening to it over and over lately. It's Losing Myself in You. There's no Well, that's classic Bish sounding, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. I didn't realize he had so much personnel on his stuff. I knew he was kind of on the perimeter of the yacht. Yeah, yeah. Right? But I thought he kind of ran parallel to that scene, not in it. So yeah. it's interesting they have that much personnel. Well, that Bish album sure does. So anyway, what do mm. you got for uh, a buried treasure? Well, my buried treasure is uh, he was telling the story about um, uh, recording uh, Steve Gadd for Leo Sayer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I... I had to go and dig out that second song that, that they cut that day, the second single, other than You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. So I want to bring that one in as a buried treasure because 
you know, he talked about recording Gad, but it says also that Ray Parker Jr., Larry Carlton, and Chuck Rainey play on that. So it's almost the the whole Steely Dan band that was going to play that day, it seems like. Yeah, right. You know, it wasn't just about getting Gad. So uh, same day, same session, um, but this was uh, Leo Sayer, How Much Love. Yeah, went top 20 in 1977. It's amazing when we hear about these stories of people who are either just working like down the hall in the same building and then they collaborate or that like the story you just told. It's just, God, what a scene that was. I know, man. Hmm. Mm. All right. Well, that brings you back uh, to give us an off the map. How far off the map are we going? Uh, we're going to 1971, connects to the map, but it is definitely off the map. The other thing that Bill talked about was early on in his career. Uh, recording Barbara Streisand. And uh, so I'm going to go to 1971. This is a Barbara Streisand song that he did. And it's actually the first song that Becker and Fagan ever had covered by an artist. They wrote this even before, this predates them even forming Steely Dan. So it is produced by Richard Perry. Bill is the assistant producer, and Donald Fagan even plays organ on it. And this is called I Mean to Shine. Yeah, so this was Fagan and Becker before they were even known. Interesting. That was obviously earlier in Bill's career. What did he do on that? You said assistant engineer? Assisted, and he was the engineer. Oh, So assistant okay. producer. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Cool. And is that brought up in the book? That is in the book. All right. Chairman at the board, everyone. Yep. All right. Well, last but not least, I'm going... Off the map for you. Yeah, this is off the map for me, and it's off the Bill Schnee map, too, unfortunately. But... um a couple weeks ago, or last week, I think it was, we had our Near Misses episode, mm-hmm. and uh, I should have included this then because this is a Frankie Valley tune. Oh, yeah. Which, what's funny about how close sometimes Frankie Valley got, in, but then it was just never quite right to be Yacht Rock. Yeah, In other right. words, you might say so close and yet so far. <laughs> I'm bringing in his first number one tune, and it's... Yacht adjacent, I think. It's My Eyes Adored You. My eyes adored you Oh, I never laid a hand on you My eyes adored you Like a million miles away from me You couldn't see how I adored you So close, so close and yet so far Yeah, certainly, uh uh, seems era appropriate, but very, very swoony on the romance. So, yeah. uh, that, so that, that's a death knell for Yachty. Not a guaranteed out, but it's that's pretty syrupy. So close to get so far, you might yes, say. Yes, it is. <laughs> you might say that. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're a lyricist. The thing you might also say is farewell, but not goodbye. And so we're going to no, do that with no. Bill. Adieu? No. Not adieu. Ahoy. Poloy. Well, we're not supposed <laughs> to hit the poloy. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hell. There, I took it back. Oh, okay. (laughs) See you next week.